Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Mark. And I'm Rob. And in tonight's episode, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who fans and fandom, and how it's evolved over the years. Mark, before we take a deep dive into fandom, um, let's just talk about the uh, the big news that's been released uh, to fandom in the last forty eight hours, which is uh, Ian Levine has once again been hoaxed. Uh, with the uh, with Rogue Cyberman now a dim memory, it's been a while since we've actually had uh, someone attempt a hoax, uh, and sadly, Ian is a, a target uh, for you know just for a variety of reasons. I mean, he's got his he's he's, he's well known as an episode episode hunter and. Uh, and uh, of course, his often volcanic uh, temperament <laughs> makes him an easy target for a quick, you know, emotional uh, fix. So, but of course, the real, the real, <laughs> the real, uh, the real news is, of course, the release of uh, Peter Capaldi in his new costume as the twelfth, fifteenth, fourteenth, whatever number, whatever number Doctor you'd like to give him is. Uh, it, it's just been released. Uh, uh, as I always ask Mark, uh, what did you think? Uh, snazzy, isn't he? The actual silhouette of the costume does remind me of uh, Matt Smith's uh, last costume, but uh, when I look at look at it now, I'm looking at it uh, on my computer, it's a cross between a mod, John Pertwee, and Adam Ant. There is a bit of that. Uh, there's very, there's, uh, as I've been sort of thinking in the last few weeks um, that we discussed in our last uh, episode, there was that uh, photo with uh, Capaldi and Coleman uh, standing next to each other and Capaldi uh, taking on a very Pertwee esque pose, uh, and there's a, there's a little bit of uh, that in in the costume itself, and of course the pose that he's chosen. I mean the uh, the, the red uh, cloth um, on the inside of his jacket is very reminiscent of Pertwee, uh, and the, and I can see how you say the silhouette is very um, is very uh, Matt Smith, but I don't these days you really can't get away, even though Tennant thought he could. With a jacket longer than sort of knee length, I suppose. And his shoes are the uh, shiniest shoes since Tim Book Taylor's and the goodies, I think. <laughs> Have you seen how shiny those shoes are? I, I'm looking at them. I can see his face reflected in them almost. And that's the same line they used in the goodies. <laughs> they're amazing. Yeah, they're um, I think they're a pair of Doc Martens, apparently. So, uh, yes. Uh, no, I'm very happy with the uh, togs he's chosen. So, uh, roll on autumn. When uh, we start seeing him in action, I'm, I'm wondering if they're actually they've hired a cast member who's responsible specifically and only for uh, keeping his shoes buff to a certain you know shine. Because my God, I, I think he just slipped them on just for the first time for that photo shoot. Yeah, no wonder his hair's gone white. It's been ble- it's been bleached by the reflection. What do you, what do you think about? Um, I mean, I, I, I I'm getting a Pertwee vibe. Uh, I, I mean, Moffat has said or uh, that um, you know he, uh, the, the new Doctor and, and Clara won't necessarily get on initially and of course there was that spikiness with uh, with Pertwee you know from Spearhead especially in season 7 hmm. um, are you getting a, a, a Pertwee vibe or am I reading way too much into disparate bits of no information I think you're doing what a normal fan does is uh, looking for anything tangible in a small amount of information we have uh, look I don't know what he's going to be like I mean from the interviews you've read with him um, yes he's going to be spiky does Pertwee? I mean, we should be leaving this to our next cast, but I think Pertwee is much more spikier in season eight. He's a bit of an ass actually in season eight than opposed to season seven. Mm. He's quite he's downright rude. No, yeah, he does. I mean, there's that famous ham-fisted bun vendor to uh, to Joe. What is that? 
What is a ham-fisted bun? Well, I, I was, is that a ha- is that a hot dog seller? Well, is it is there ham in the bun that you're vending? <laughs> Hamburger. I don't know. Yes, maybe he was onto something there, but um, I haven't got to that page in the Robert Holmes biography yet. Oh, you've got the Robert Holmes biography too. You... Yeah. God damn it! All right, I'll, I'll, it's payday on Thursday, so I'll be all over that. <laughs> along with about 10 other books that I've got on my goddamn list. I was just thinking how far we've come in since 2005 where uh, the, re- the reveal for Eccleston's costume, which was a decidedly modern, but just completely a complete departure from what we'd seen before in the uh, mm. Air Quotes classic series. Uh, and, um, you know, modern clothing, even it wouldn't, look, wouldn't have looked out, pl- out of place in a nightclub or a bar on mm. a Friday night headbutting people. But... Um, now you, you, we've we've moved you know to 2014 and there's been a decided move back back to yeah. I mean this is I mean you could sort of just about get away with this uh, this this costume you know in a in a in a major city I suppose on a Friday or a Saturday night uh, but uh, yeah there's definitely it, it harks back the silhouettes yeah. the colours it's I mean it's definitely there's a 70s vibe to it as a friend of ours said today it's just a pity that there's no frills. Uh, I would have loved a good frill, but um, he wouldn't have looked good in the cape. No, no, no. But um, yeah, no. It uh, I, I, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. But uh, uh, do you think it's the sign of a you know a really confident production team that they can uh, move away from you know? I mean, everyone said at the time when Eccleston was cast with and, and his costume that for the show to be taken seriously, he would have to leave those Edwardian Victorian trappings behind. Now we've reached a point where, you know, we're, we're, as you said, we're, we're rolling back towards that. So, the, I, I, you know, what do you think? Uh, I think in this case, uh, it probably is a, a confident production team thinking, well, look, the clothes maketh the man, so um, let's go with this. I think I said in a previous podcast, I was never a fan of Eccleston's, uh, you know, governor-style attire mm. at all. So uh, any, anything sort of traditional for an old series fan is, is great. And hopefully the uh, new kids and the fangirls all embrace it as well. And, and as you say, the uh, the clothing is a statement of intent, really. I think, and hopefully, um, well, hopefully, there's a shift in tone anyway for for season, for season series series eight series eight. Even though the Paternoster gang, as we you know, whinged, uh, I whinged anyway last uh, episode. We both whinged. I think we both whinged, and legitimately so, because just just to diverge slightly, I if if if. Capaldi is seeing himself or seeing the role in going in one direction and the Paternoster gang comes back and you've got that comedy element of, uh, you know, Strax. I, I don't know. I think you're undermining what Capaldi was hoping because Strax is just, unfortunately, an out-and-out comedy figure. And while you do need that light and shade, uh, can someone kill him off just for good, please? Get rid of him? It's just a bad idea made worse with every, every appearance. No offence to Dan Starkey, but... You know, I think Strax is 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 a mistake. Okay, so what we'll do is before we sort of launch into our main topic, we've uh, Rob's divulged into uh, the Pananoster gang. So we received an email uh, from Jez Waterstone in Ireland. Hi, Jez, how are you? I just sort of read it out instead of reading it at the end. Might bring it uh, forward uh, to the front of the program. So hi, guys. Can I raise a thought I had while listening to your latest podcast? It's about the Pananoster gang and it might be worth a little discussion in your next program. I agree with you that for the Paternoster gang to remain of value to the show, they're going to have to do more than their usual shtick. But it did sound as though you guys take an especially large degree of exception to Strax's continued buffoonery. My own view on the character 
is that there is nowhere interesting to take the Sontarans as a primary antagonist anymore. So they may as well be used for fun instead. Being single-minded clones, I don't think Robert Holmes ever intended them to have a reoccurring dramatic role. When he used them in The Two Doctors, for example, they could have easily been substituted for any race of generic baddies. If that conclusion is correct, then their relegation to threatless comedy psychic status doesn't rob us of any missed opportunities. Having said that, I still can foresee two possible dramatic uses for the Sontarans in the new series. One, an episode reintroducing the Rutans, and two, an episode where Strax's character is put into conflict against the rest of his species, presumably ending with his death. So perhaps it is a good thing that Moffat is keeping the Sontarans relevant to the current era of the show, and he might as well use them for humour until either all of the above scenarios is put into place. What do you guys think? Does Strax really deserve a hard time? Keep up the good work, Jez Waterston. Well, I think, as we saw in The Five Doctors, Stephen Moffat likes play. Sorry, The Five-ish Doctors. Stephen Moffat likes playing with his toys. And um, the Paternoster gang are very much uh, fall into that, uh, into that category. I can't, see, I can't see him killing off any of them. I think he... I just can't see him killing off any of them because I I think that uh, he he sees them u- work useful you know as a, as a, they serve a particular function uh, you know there's a link to uh, to, to Victorian uh, the Victorian times and I think he's just he loves writing for them and especially Strax I mean he just he gets all those comedy lines going uh, coming out of his mouth and I'm sure he finds that amusing I mean if if as Jez says they I mean those two points that he brings up about you know how how to handle them as for dramatic uses. Well, I mean, of course, reintroducing uh, the Rutons would be one way to go. And, I mean, if for some reason, you know, Moffat had too much wine one night and decided to write a death scene, that'd be all well and good. But, I mean, hopefully it doesn't fall into the recent trap of the series by not, you know, uh, building up to that. Yeah. Let's just hope, let's just hope that, you know, uh, it's not one episode and at the end of it he's dead and we all, you know, shed a fake tear. I mean, if you're going to have the Paternoster gang being a you know, recurring team, then build it slowly, you know. Do, do something like that. Build it slowly and allow us to feel emotionally involved. Because if you don't, then it's like in uh, Time of the Doctor where, you know, it, it just, nothing is built up and it just you just get this denouement and it means nothing because there's, there's, no, there's no emotional buy-in from the audience. I did like his idea about bringing the Rutans back. I, I just tend to think sometimes when they, when they bring, bring back classic era monsters or you know uh, or villains or whatever uh, it's generally done in such a sort of bland way that it really doesn't have any particular impact I mean the real impact of them was when they first came out and we were all younger and we took that on board but I mean you get now you know that you know the tin soldiers and uh, Cybermen I mean they're they're a classic villain from 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 years and years ago and they just have they're so badly handled and depicted that you know, if you had the rutons, again, they'd just be a generic, you know, uh, shape-shifting uh, creature, and would would have no resonance with anyone really. The young kids will love them, and it, I know what you said about the Cybermen, and I, look, I don't particularly like the uh, new series Cybermen either, but I think for the kids, uh, I think they do resonate, especially when they're clomping along the streets. Clomp, clomp. clomp. want to advise everyone that we've uh, finally entered the 21st century and uh, got ourselves our own Facebook page or Stalkbook 
Uh, yes. One way to catch up with all your high school girlfriends who really didn't know that you were their boyfriend uh, and revisiting them 20 years later. Facebook. Uh, no, uh, facebook.com slash 42 to doomsday. Uh, please come on down. As we've always said, we, uh, we, we, we'd love your feedback, uh, thoughts and suggestions on how to improve the podcast, thoughts and suggestions on topics to discuss. Uh, and it's just a, hopefully a little, a little mini forum for, for interaction between us and our loyal listeners. And uh, if you like us, like us. Uh, moving on to our discussion of uh, fans and fandom, both of uh, both of us attended uh, a meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago in a hidden bunker in uh, the eastern suburbs of, of Melbourne, where we participated in the uh, possibly the final ever paper uh, fanzine of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria. We helped uh, put that one to bed uh, with a number of our friends uh, in the Doctor Who Club of Victoria. And while we were there, we took the opportunity to uh, to interview um, a couple of uh, long-standing fans. Uh, one of them, Dave, is the uh, outgoing uh, president of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria, and the other other gentleman uh, is Tom, who's uh, been involved with the club uh, here in Melbourne uh, since the early 1980s. And uh, uh, we, we took the opportunity to to have a chat to them, uh, ask some questions about their time uh, in fandom, in organised fandom, the highs and lows, and 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 what they saw as the uh, the future of fandom, uh, particularly in the internet age. Tom and Dave, both of you have been in fandom for... Uh, a bit over a quarter of a century in my case. Yeah, and what, 33, 34 years for me, with a massive 22-year gap in between. Uh, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, mine isn't um, consistent in any way, but it would have started in 1987. Right. So how did you get into fandom initially? What was your first contact with it? Um, I actually was taken along by my dad, who was a Doctor Who fan, and looking for a way to bond with his son, who wasn't very good at sport. So instead of going to the soccer or the footy, we actually went to a Doctor Who meeting. And um, at my first meeting, we watched Frontios and we watched the Aztecs, which was kind of a big deal, seeing this story that I'd never heard of with a doctor I'd never seen before. And it was about 30 people in someone's back lounge, but I still remember it all these years later. How are you, Tom? I got into fandom by going to Space Age Orcs back at Swanston Street in the city, and I walked in there trying to buy my latest Doctor Who Target novel and I saw a fanzine there called Supervoc, issue one. And from there I learned about the Doctor Who Club of Victoria and that stays it was still being run by Adrian Lozen. And uh, I just joined up at that point and went to my first meeting about a month later where they had the annual general meeting and elected a new president. And what was the attraction for you for going? It was actually finding other people that liked Doctor Who. Uh, there certainly wasn't many at my school, at high school and things like that. It was just, yeah, it was just finding a like mind and uh, getting to know people. But there, there were also very real and tangible benefits you got from joining a club that you couldn't get otherwise. I mean, we were watching Sylvester McCoy stories, in some cases two years before they were broadcast on TV out here, we were seeing episodes from the 60s that, you know, otherwise we would not have seen and weren't available to the public. So there was stuff you could only get through a fan club back then that you had to go along and be part but of. That was certainly in later times, in those earlier, earlier dim dark days. I mean, we didn't even have video recorders. The, the best claim to fame we had in 1980 was someone actually owned a pneumatic machine and they recorded the one-hour brain of Morbius, and that got replayed at one meeting, and that was it. 
So David, you just talked about videos seem to be the, the, the primary focus in, in club meetings later on in the 80s, for example, where Tom, you had nothing really. So how did, in Tom's case, how did, what were, how did meetings run? What were activities were they running? In, 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 well, Doctor Club Victoria, there, every meeting was a general meeting, so there was always business to discuss. Uh, it was a whole new scene of uh, trying to set up what, what was Sonic Screwdriver going to be like, what was Supervolt going to be like, what was the frequency that was never going to be met of either of those timetables. And so there was always you'd walk into a meeting at 11 o'clock and the first two to three hours were spent discussing business. The rest of it was just you know, coffee and cake and just talking to other people and comparing uh, merchandise. You know, hey, here's the latest Target book. And, oh, gee, I haven't seen that cover before. It's you know, just come out or something. And eventually that morphed into the video days and the end-of-year parties uh, that would, would come up, which is where the only chance you really got to see a new episode uh, in that case, you know, we got to see um, uh, was Full Circle and Warriors Gate the year before they actually made it to Australian shores where uh, Dallas Jones and Tony Howe got a copy down to us in Victoria to show what season 18 was going to be like. And then, yeah, that was it until... But everything was just live on TV. Mm. So there was no video running around until... Probably around about 85, 86 at that time, it started to get popular and you'd go along, you might see Seeds of Death or something like that. Mm. And what was fandom's uh, view of the show at that early stage in sort of organised fandom? I mean, later in the 80s it became very fractured. And what was the view like for the sort of the late 70s? I find fandom back then, I was thinking about this the other day actually, fandom back then is much like fandom today. Everybody hates the current season. And, you know, back then, the big one was Horns of Nyamon. No one liked Horns of No one liked season 17. That was the last one that we got for quite a while. Uh, to the point where no one would even call that story by name. It was the dreaded 108. Um, you know, you're cursed if you ever said the name out loud. Mm. And, you know, everyone hated that. Nathan Turner came in, it was meant to be a breath of fresh air, but there was a bit that you didn't like. It was, oh yeah, Megalos was pretty crap. Everything else, you know, there was always something, and then it just got progressively worse and worse. That, you know, well, season 17 is looking pretty damn good now. You know, Sylvester McCoy is looking pretty damn good now too. Um, yeah, it, it's... The current season always seems to be a pet hate of the majority of fandom, but probably more so that it, there's certainly good reason for it now. And what about you, Dave? I mean, obviously being a younger fan, were you aware of the, the currents, the undercurrents in fandom at that early stage? Uh, certainly I was aware of people having opinions about different stories, you know, um, whether someone liked or didn't like Greatest Show in the Galaxy, for example. But generally speaking, I think people were just glad to see the episodes. And the, the, the opinion and the analysis would sort of come later. I think, yeah, most people were just grateful to see them, but... Um, as the 80s went on, the other thing is the emphasis became not so much watching new stuff, it was watching old stuff that, you know, as these tapes from the 60s and 70s started to circulate. So, um, no, people just enjoyed watching the stories from what I remember. There was certainly a lot more interest in seeing the older stuff. Um, once again, uh, the reality of the time was that, you know, black and white, you just can't go wrong. You know, there was no 
crap stories. You know, so people had obviously had the same space museum at that time. But but if I can just interrupt, Tom. Not only we not seen it, we hadn't read again and again and again that elite fan opinion was that it was rubbish. So we were watching these stories completely open eyed, wide eyed. You know, there, there was you know, and Pertwee was untouchable as well. Pertwee was untouchable yeah. because yeah. we only ever got eight stories repeated mm. until you know the, the magic years, eighty six. Yeah, the, the, the Pertwee run when yeah. when they when they had the massive uh, Pertwee run, mm. um, and you know, Demons was this untouchable story of how fantastic, and it is a good story. Don't get me wrong, but everyone's got a memory of a Target novel, which is still better than the TV show mm. in reality, mm. um, because. Barry Letts put so much more into it. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, and people remember things on Terror of the Ordens that never happened except in the book until we got to see it. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, it was untouchable. But though, though, showing those, and you know, I, wa- I was part of that group that managed to get some of that stuff out to Australia. Uh, so people were seeing Moonbase 2 and 4 and seeing Terror of the Ordens and things like stories of the ilk. Um, that you just weren't getting anything about. Mm. Uh, and that sort of opened up your eyes to where you could say, well, you know something, not all of it's untouchable. There, are, there is crap in every era of Doctor Who, um, but there is also probably some good in every era of Doctor Who. Yeah, that's probably fair. So. I, I do recall watching the gunfighters for the first time in about 1989 and... On a completely open-eyed viewing, that didn't go down very well. No, no, it doesn't. And the uh, and the social side of being in, in fandom. The social how, how side did that develop as you as you were members of the club. Well, okay, be- being a teenager, the social side of fandom wasn't uh, as open to me when I joined the club because uh, you you didn't go out midweek because you had school the next day and you weren't old enough to drink. Uh, so there was uh, probably two phases to that. There was a group. It was made up at that time of the president and the secretary, and they would have a, I suppose, a, a, a more adult social event of going to having a drink and going out and whatever else. And then what was there for us as the junior fans is that we would uh, go along to the meetings and just interact there, uh, get into the latest Doctor Who weekly, Doctor Who monthly. Uh, seeing what they had, people would swap, buy, sell uh, a few things. Well, life hasn't changed all that much then for me, has it? <laughs> um, and as you grew up and grew older, you know, you, you'd move into those circles, and so you, you'd, you'd go to the pub night and you'd do something else. Uh, you know, think things would change that way, and people made good, long-term, lasting friendships in the club. Um, my oldest friends that I do have uh, are from those days, uh, from 1980 to 1989 that I was there in the club. Um, people I still see today, talk to today, you know, more so than any other part of my life. So, what did you find in terms of the social side? Um, I could probably say something very similar to what Tom did. It was sort of once I became 16, 17, I was old enough to go along to the more social events, join the committee, and you go to committee meetings which maybe 30-40% of them were actually planning a meeting or editing the fanzine the rest was just listening to the latest We Not All album or just chatting or just hanging with your mates and like Tom, I have friends from 20 years ago when I got really involved in the club committee and they're still my mates now even though we you know, we still talk about Doctor Who but it's only a very small part of our friendship and 
Yeah, so it certainly grew out of the club, but I think you did have to be an adult to really appreciate that sort that, of thing. That's right. And, you know, you, the club back then used to do the other ones. There used to be the annual cricket match against the Goon Club um, down at Wattle Park. You used to do a lot of things like that. that you know, that, that would be the interaction you'd have with other fandom. Um, that cross-species reference, you know, sort of got very divisive probably in the in the 90s where you know if you were star trek you were star trek you're like nothing else and if you were x-files you were very much only x-files that, that's right and, uh, um and that's why you know i was like i branched into red dwarf which seemed to everybody seemed to like red dwarf so. hmm. club meetings why do fans uh, attend club meetings and what do they get out of them that they not necessarily can get off the internet for example um oh vitamin d I would say that it's very much now 90% based on the social aspect. I mean, there is a chance to show a few little internet extras that not everyone has access to or maybe a few little leaked things that come our way we can show, but 90% of fandom now is about actually sitting down with a real-life breathing person and chatting about the show. Did you like the last episode? What do you think of Stephen Moffat? And yes, you can do a lot of that online, you can do that in forums, but if you want to do that with a flesh-and-blood person... You've got to go to a club meeting, and that's, um, I think, really the only big thing they can offer these days. I think that's very true. Um, you know, the club meets, what, every six to eight weeks uh, at the moment. Uh, my year of return this year uh, was very much the fact that, okay, you know, uh, I needed to downsize my collection and I could go to a, a targeted audience of where you're going to get the most uh, response and interaction with people that will maybe after that stuff, maybe not. Um, but th- that, that sort of creates a, a dialogue in its own right as well, that you can talk about something that comes out of a, somebody buying a book, buying a magazine, something like that, um, which... You know, you can't walk into Minotaur. There's a, there's only new stuff there. If you, if you want something from the classic series, if you want certain information, if you want um, specific uh, things that aren't available in the shops, unless you're going to a, a collector's shop or something like that, you know, it's the club that you're going to go to 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 try and get some uh, inroads into completing a collection or moving something on to someone else. Um, that was certainly the feeling back then. I, I, I personally feel the club's gone the whole uh, circuit and is doing now what it used to do 30-odd years ago. Um, you, you went there for a social aspect. People would bring a plate of food. People would bring drinks, you know, soft drink and whatever, whatever else. It was held at somebody's house. Um, and you'd be sitting there talking because there was no videos. The advent of the video... Uh, and later DVD or as episodes got released or episodes were made available to fans to watch clandestinely or by purchase that inhabited the club for a very long period of time where people wouldn't talk they would rather sit in a dark room with 30 other people and watch a fuzzy copy of 10th Planet 10th Planet or you know something Space Museum or The Chase or you know Seeds of Death whatever it was Whatever was been able to get, you know, traded from you know the sources in England, uh, out here, and people were you know shh, shh, watching Doctor Who, you know, don't talk, you know. and then after that, you know, that took up you know, six episodes, took up two and a half hours, 
then you might actually have a conversation with somebody or things like that. And that went on for a very long time in fandom, uh, which pretty much destroyed it for me, and I moved on. Um, and as it's, you know, coming back to it now, whilst there's the occasional one, everyone owns everything. Mm. There's only one episode that people can't own outright within the next two months. Um, but that's probably out there as well. But we've come back to that social aspect and the club for the last 12 months doing these discussion panels has done an exceedingly good job to be interactive and to be inclusive so people can have a voice rather than just watching a video. Uh, I don't know what it was like five years ago or ten years ago, but that's certainly uh, my experience in the last... uh, one certainly one year, but you know the last two to three that I've uh, been reinteracting with the club. And Dave, and as the outgoing president of the Doctor Club of Victoria, that's been your guiding philosophy, hasn't it, to introduce that more social element again? Both both the social element, but also a, a certain amount of structure. So we structured the last year, as many podcasts and clubs have, around the whole fiftieth anniversary. So we did a different chunk of the series each meeting, and we'll present a few structured panels about that era, and um, you know put clips up and then ask questions back to the fans and some of the very interesting ones were centred around the 80s where I went back and deliberately found a lot of the controversies from fandom in the 80s put up clips and then said to the membership do you still find these controversial and in many cases the membership said no we've come to love, you know, Bonnie Langford we've come to love trial, we've come to respect this and that's been very interesting but you know, you can't go into your workplace on Monday morning and say what's your opinion of the John Nathan Turner era you can go to a club and say What's your opinion of the John Nathan Turner era? So if you want to have those conversations in your life, that's something the club can offer. That Yeah, that's what we've been trying to do. What's the demographic been in terms of the attendance to, to club meetings? Have there been more old classic fans or has there been a small increase in, say, new series viewers coming, coming into the club? We certainly started off almost entirely with classic fans, but over the year we've built up more people who have discovered the show with the new series um, many of whom are actually looking having discovered the show of the new series to now explore the old series and so they're finding the club a very good way to do that because as as Tom mentioned really the only way you can do that is through fandom networks so that that has been useful for us as well Dave you were involved uh, in the Timestorm convention uh, sometime in the 90s 97 yes 97 that had Sophie Aldred come out to Australia yes um, can you tell us about your involvement in that and how um, how that went off Look, it was the club committee at the time, which was maybe five, six of us, made the decision we wanted to run a convention, we wanted to do something a bit bigger than the meeting, and Sophie Aldred was probably the most popular guest within the price, the price range of an Australian club. So you've got to remember, you've got to bring guests out from the UK, airfares, accommodation, so we picked Sophie Aldred, she said yes, and we put together a two-and-a-half-day convention where people could come along, meet, meet the guest, do Q&A, uh, lots of autographs, lots of photo opportunities, but also lots of panels, lots of discussion and dinners, um, cocktail parties, all that sort of thing. And it was a lot of hard work. And it was all done by people after school and after hours. But it was a lot of fun and probably the highlight of my time in fandom, being involved in that. The Well, once again, that, that was a different type of convention than what we get today. Very different to what we get uh, today. A fan-run convention, and I've not had... Uh, the experience of running a Doctor Who convention, but I, I ran Multiverse for the eight years that that was in operations and with uh, Derek Screen. Um, 
band that basically Derek did a lot of the work. He had the contacts, he did the guest liaison, but you know, I was there on the committee. It was my idea originally, and I ran the Red Dwarf Club where we also ran a few events when the opportunity arose from that. Um, but, it, but they were very amateur, very they, social they, events. They were amateur. They, they were they, they was totally non-professional and there was a different expectation from the other side of the table uh, of the guest as well as the other side of the table of the uh, attendees. Um, you know, it wasn't a go in, pay lots of money, pay for autographs on top of that. You know, if you, you paid your... You know, even back then, you know, talking 1997, it was $100 to go to a convention. But that was for the weekend. And you walked in there and, oh, look at that, I've got 16 Target books. Oh, yeah, sign all 16 Target yeah. books. All, 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 everything was included in the Everything was totally inclusive of that because the guests got a free holiday. Now it's on the promise of that they're going to make, you know, a substantial amount of money uh, from it. And... You know, that's that's the way the world's moved on from there. So, so do you think that uh, the fans are there to be exploited today with the convention as they're currently structured? I don't think they're there to be exploited uh, because that sort of validates that they should be exploited. Um, are they being exploited for, from some areas? Yes, I think they are. But unfortunately, we're our, our own worst enemies there because... If we to support us. That's right. If we want to meet these actors and get an autograph, we have to pay the entry fee to the con. We have to pay oh, yeah. per autograph well, the fee. And we're, we're willing to do it. So, yeah. it, Look, it is a business for um, certain areas and certain people, and, you know, good luck to them. You know, they're there probably as, as a business themselves. Uh, and, yes, as Dave uh, said, you know, if we, want, if we want it, we have to be prepared. And I am a person that is prepared because... That's what I enjoy, you know. That's something I've gotten back out of fandom and uh, Doctor Who. But but let's also be honest, Tom. You and I were both at a recent convention in Melbourne. How much of that did we spend in our little group of seven or eight people just chatting and actually having a good time and catching up as well? Ninety three point seven. Yeah, there about. So <laughs> so you know, we still use these events as an excuse to catch up with our mates. Oh, absolutely, and and that, that's part of it as well. And but at the, by the same token, I would say that. I took the opportunity to meet some new people. Yes. Uh, as well as, on top of just, you know, listening to the talks and everything else. But, you know, it was, that, that, that that's the best bit about conventions I like, is, um, which is also the most annoying part, is you're standing in line. Standing up is a difficult part, but the in line is, everybody will talk to everybody else. It's a matter of, oh, what are you getting signed? Oh, what are you getting signed? Oh, that's really, I don't think I've seen that before. And you, you get up a dialogue that way with people and, you know, just introduce people. I've, I've met people, you know, going through the, the bigger ones, the Armageddons and that, that I meet at every single convention that they hold in Melbourne. I see the same people there and I always end up next to them in line again and, you know, oh, what have you been doing for the last six months? Oh, I've been blah, 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 here, there, everywhere. I met such and such over in this convention. And, you know, it, it, it's a great way to catch up that way. So what do you think is uh, fandom's future in the internet age? I think that there is a future for fandom, but it's going to be very different to the very, dare I say, conservative fandom that we grew up with and that we've been part of. In that for fandom, it was all about, for us, watching the show, chatting about the show, all the rest of it. There now seems to be a very different, more modern type of fan coming through. Um, they are a lot more fanatical about it. They're a lot more open about it. 
Um, they're happy to play dress-ups and go and do audio adventures together, and they have an absolute great time doing that. It's very different to what we grew up with. Absolutely. I mean, we would never have walked down the middle of the main street of Melbourne wearing costumes proudly and wearing feathers. But No. No. Um, but younger fans and well, new generation of fans... Well, maybe if we were very, very drunk. There were certainly no feathers in our day. No, that's true. Um, but no, the scarf was there. The scarf was there. But no, look, it, there, there's a lot more, I guess you might call, might call fan pride out there. And they throw themselves into it and they love it. And it's it's not our style, but if they're happy, God bless them. Off, off topic there. 2005, there's a lot to be thankful for because all of a sudden our childhood became cool mm. and I'm really grateful for that, for that. But but we're almost too old to exploit it though. Oh, absolutely. But you know, my kids watch the new series. I, I find it really hard to show them the old series. They just they don't seem to be that interested, but they do watch the new series and their friends watch it and their friends says, Oh, your dad's got a lot of Doctor Who stuff. Yeah, yeah, he does, you know. But um yeah, you know, all of a sudden my childhood after years of torment, became cool. I, 2005. I blame the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, that that as well. That 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 works towards it as well. Um, ten years ago, we spoke about will internet kill fandom and as part of multiverse, and we're thinking, you know, you know, it's certainly killing the fan clubs as uh, people will PDF a um, fanzine or magazine online or whatever it's going to. Um, it surprises me every year that it's still going on strong. Uh, and in certain times, like the Doctor Who Club was declining, it rebuilt itself again a few years back. Um, but you know what's really different, yeah. Tom? There are female fans. Well, that's too. That's right. They that's, that's just freaks me out. So there's a chance that there could be future breeding. There could be <laughs> so, fan eugenics out there. That's right. Um Breeding the perfect Doctor Who fan. Let's not get that carried away. Come on. Yeah, no, that's right. That's just the realm of science fiction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does surprise me every year that you know that hasn't died the ultimate death that we we predicted ten years ago. It's sort of like global warming. Um, just hasn't come to pass. Um, that there's yeah there there is still life and breath in a lot of fan clubs around of that and I think there's always going to be a need for it because I don't think the internet can kill all need for human interaction yet well let's face it if people are still talking about Babylon 5 15 years after it went off air mm. they're still talking about Buffy what 12 13 years after it went off air yes Doctor Who's still on air that's right so it's got a leg up on those guys those series and those series are still going strong well, that's true. Uh, Trek, Trek's still going strong. Yeah, and X-Files and yeah. all that. Uh, it gets declining, you know, you get a much more core base, um, but that's a very strong core base of, of what's left um, from it. Uh, you know, talk about Twilight Zone, you know, talk about The Prisoner. I mean, Christ, we could try to make a new series about it and everyone's ignored it, but still there's that initial core liking for the for that original 1968 series. Um Doctor Who is very much like that as well. Very much. You mentioned before, I mean, the reason why we're all here today is not because we're all getting married. It's uh, We're actually helping out uh, putting the last uh, issue of Sonic Screwdiver together. Un- under under the, the coffin? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Uh, the, the last issue of Sonic Screwdiver under the uh, current team. 
As long as Screwdriver being our fans. Uh, sorry, uh, obviously being the fanzine. Now, this is one of the last uh, printed fanzines, I think, in, in the country. Uh, I know of at least one other, but it would yeah. be maybe two others at most, yes. So what, I mean, what's the future of the printed fanzine? Is it is it a blog? Is it a PDF email? What do you think it's going to be? Is, Look, it, is it going to survive the next two or three years? I, my, my view remains that if you are paying money to join an organisation, you deserve something tangible and physical back in your hand in return for that, which is the fanzine. Otherwise, you know, if you're just doing a blog, if you're just doing a PDF... You really can't, in my view, charge money and call yourself a club. Whether oh, that's the yourself, that... you can call yourself a club, but you're right. If, if somebody's handing over uh, some money, then yes, there has to be a, a, a tangible reward for for the loyalty of handing over that money. Whether that people are still willing to hand over that money in ten years' time, that's probably the X factor, hmm. and we couldn't predict that. We've covered that, I think. I mean, Doctor Who magazine now do a, uh, a an e version of the magazine where you pay a substantial discount on on the current subscription, but get delivered to your, your tablet or device. Is that the way forward, where you pay a reduced membership and get a, get a PDF instead of actually getting a physical? I mean, is, is is the physical thing that important, really? Personally, to me, no, it's not because I'd I'd rather have uh, my collection of magazines at least electronically, but nothing beats a good book in your hand if you're buying a novel um, look it's a horses for courses thing. it is it, yeah that, that, that's right I mean saying that um, I still get every issue of Starburst and I'm up to 396 at the moment uh, the, since they relaunched the line about two years ago um, I still want the physical copies of that um, but if they had an electronic copy available would I buy that as well possible for fanzines it's not that important there's a, there's a lot of good international fanzines that are only available as downloads uh, as well and they're just as entertaining like that on the tablet if, you, if you're only reading it for news we, we do have though in the club a number of members who don't have the internet access required to download or get emailed a fanzine so there, there, there is a place for the hard copy yes. and i think one of the reasons why we've retained some of our members we have retained is because we do have that option. Um, in five, ten years' time, will there still be people without the internet? Again, that's speculative. I don't uh, know. Directly downloaded into the brain. <laughs> um, probably what I'll add, just talking about the year, is the hardest part that we have had as a club during the year has been that there are a lot of fans who are only fans of the classic series. There are a lot of fans who are only fans of the new series. And we found that... It's the new civil war. Well, it, it is, but in some ways clubs and fanzines and blogs and even podcasts to some extent, I think you guys have found, have to choose, are we going to be a classic-focused thing or a new series-focused thing? And, and yes, you can dabble from one to the other a little bit, but we have found it very hard to satisfy both of those type of fans. And yes, there are fans who love every aspect of the show, absolutely, and they're very easy to cater for, but probably the hardest part of doing this anniversary year at the club, has been trying to find a way to celebrate this series that all types of fans like, and it has been a challenge. So how did you go about doing that? Um, if I was having my time again, I probably would do it differently because, as I said, we picked a different era of the show and we went through in chronological order. So realistically, if you're a fan of the new series... You waited until October. You waited until October to be, to be interested. <laughs> now, we, we also had other panels during the course of the year, but... I don't think we did do that very well, and that it was a challenge that we we did struggle with. Um, by the same token, there were fans who, come October, 
had no interest in turning up again because we discussed all the Doctor Who they liked. Yes. So they're not coming to any more meetings. And it is a challenge. So, Dave and Tom, thank you very much for your contributions. Thanks very much. Welcome back. And Rob and I are going to uh, give you our thoughts. Rob, what was your uh, first interaction with fandom? My first interaction with fandom was... Uh, was a was a remote interaction uh just thinking about it i remember uh living in a country town here in victoria and maintaining links with uh high school friends uh, uh in another country town where my, my family had moved uh, in the middle of high school and a friend of mine uh, up uh, in muldura uh, had set up his own uh, doctor who club up there and uh he had his own little fanzine which i know i have some copies hidden away in a box far far away what was it called i don't know I know the name of the fellow, but I won't. I won't mention him just you know for the sake of his own privacy and libel laws. <laughs> but I can't. I, I can't remember the name of it. But I know I. I uh, it was my first ever doc- written Doctor Who fan fiction. That's right. I remember. I just had this. I was going to go with another uh, with a with a later interaction with fan, but this has just cropped up. Yeah. So I contributed a couple of stories, some ongoing stories, and I remember Kate Orman mentioned in in a fanzine that she. Oh, she must have written a letter to him. That's right. She must have written a letter to the fans there and said how much she enjoyed the story, which was thrilling for me because, you know, Kate was obviously by that stage, uh, she was not a published author. No, that's right. But she was uh, moving into that sort of She was of doing the rounds on the fanzine. Yes, that's right. It was in the late 80s. That's right. It was in the late 80s. So that was my uh, first interaction. And then, of course, uh, moved, to, uh, moved down to Melbourne for university, uh, did university, got a job. And then uh, while working at this job, which for people who live in the UK... It was a forbidden uh, planet-style bookshop. You know, a lot of science fiction and fantasy uh, stuff there. And I, I, um, I uh, and also at that time, I'd taken up the pen again and was writing uh, some fan fiction again for a number of uh, fanzines. And one of them, which was uh, Sonic Screwdriver, which is the the, the, the fanzine of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria. I uh, working at the shop there. I met uh, a couple of uh, a couple of the people who were club members, and they sort of enticed me to come along. Uh, and you know, it was uh, it was. That was uh, something that took me out of my comfort zone because, you know, at that point I was sort of, you know, not one to, to interact really outside my own social circle. So it was a bit of a leap for me to, to attend a meeting on a Saturday afternoon uh, in Dorcas Street in uh, lovely South Melbourne. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I rolled up to that one day after work on a Saturday afternoon and it was um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, a little bit intimidating meeting all these sort of strangers, but I suppose the... Um, the, the it was eased a little by everyone attending because they had a mutual love and interest in uh, in Doctor Who. So, what activities were they uh, doing at the uh, at the meeting? Well, the one thing that sticks in my mind was there was a, a sort of who done it uh, being run. Um, each each uh, people who volunteered would take on the role of a, of a companion, and uh, and there was some sort of murder mystery thing involved and. Uh, it was, uh, in hindsight, quite an odd thing to, <laughs> to, be, to be looking at. But even then, um, there was more... Some of the people who I was talking to or with uh, at the back were sort of just keeping a sort of one eye on that, but seemed to be more interested, in, I suppose, in, in just talking amongst ourselves, mainly about the show. Uh, more general conversation ensued later on. But uh, that was my that's my abiding memory of it. The other abiding memory was embarrassing myself by standing amongst a circle of essentially strangers uh, popping up by saying, "Did you know that Gary Russell was in uh, the Famous Five? And then everyone looking at me with this, you know, just this benign look of pity and uh, nodding and going, "Yeah, we we did. Thank you very much for uh, for that." And then, <laughs> and there's the exit door over there. Yes, under the green light is the exit door. 
So that was that was my first interaction with fandom. Uh, Mark, what about yours? My uh, interaction started off in 1983. Uh, a primary school teacher um, gave me the information. He was a member of the, of the Doctor Who Club, local Doctor Who Club in Victoria here, and he gave me the, inf- uh, the information to, uh, to send away, which I duly did and got a membership form signed up. Uh, but I didn't attend my first uh, club meeting till 1984, the year where. Frankie goes to Hollywood and Duran Duran were at the top of the charts. I remember walking down, all the meetings in those days were people's houses, which would be a no-no these days with public liability issues. It'd be verboten, basically. Exactly. So um, I remember walking down, I went with a couple of school friends to this meeting, I was walking down the driveway and in the window there was a sign up saying, no Colin Baker fans allowed. So uh, already there was a division in those early days of Colin Baker's tenure. More division, not just division, but not, not as if not as if fandom is noted for its unified voice. Uh, division, omnidivision. But those meetings entailed a couple of video showings. I remember they uh, put on the Wheel in Space Part Three, which had recently had it uh, been recovered, and uh, obviously when it, from its recovery had its uh, copyright liberated and sent over on the airplanes all over the world to be shown at people's houses. So we watched that. A primitive form of torrenting. It was, yeah, it was more torrenting from people going, oh my God, can you believe we're watching this and convulsing from the mouth. Uh, we watched a bit of, watch Case of Anxiety Part 4 because it had been uh, hacked to death by the ABC over here. I think it ran for about five minutes on local TV here, the amount they cut out of it. And then... Um, they put on Warriors of the Deep for some reason, but we just turned it off and then we just had discussions and all went home. So that was my uh, initial tentative forays into Doctor Who fandom. And from there, I just kept on going to uh, club meetings, not all the time, but uh, towards the late 80s, um, I, I certainly did and got heavily involved in the running of a club and writing for the Sonic Screwed Up magazine as well, like yourself. So, uh, yeah, it was a, a it was a fairly long haul. The the, the, uh, the house meetings that you had, I mean, were they fairly fairly intimate affairs? I mean, I, I knew when uh, when I was going to the actual club meetings at various university halls, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and there was a lot of people there. It was sort of a more freewheeling exercise where sort of people would split off. There'd be people from the video room gazing, you know, uh, wrapped in rapt attention at the TV screen. Well, there'd be people around the merchandise table and there'd be other people just talking and, you know, playing various card games. What was it like in, in a house party in the early 80s? <laughs> well, there's people in the kitchen eating uh, crisps and uh, soft drink. There's a lounge room where you had a few of us watching videos and a little bit of discussions in the back when, you know, the videos weren't that interesting. So there was already sort of splinters off already. Uh, but because the the house was quite small, uh, you couldn't go very far. So people had to be uh, approachable and um, you know have discussions with each other on what they liked and what they didn't like. So was there a discernible difference between house meetings and just sort of general meetings later on? Yeah, the the focus tended to be later on uh, more on showing videos mm-hmm. because they weren't that prolific in terms of their uh, distribution in those days. So we'd have, for example. Um, like season 26 days because the ABC wouldn't show it to the year later so we ran a big season 26 day I think in the early 90s which I think Paul Cornell attended actually did he? Uh, yeah he was there yeah he was there a friend of his um, brought him to a meeting we were all sitting there and remember going to the pub with him afterwards the, the focus tended, tended to be more on, on videos uh, which I think you know in retrospect now um, were a mistake because it did take away that conversational aspect of a meeting and what people really wanted to go for instead of actually going in and talking to fans it's sort of just we all just tur- you know, turned up into a room and sat down and watched um, episodes that you couldn't see so you know and they used to run pretty much back to back 
So you, yeah, and then you'd go home. You were quite young back then, uh, weren't you? I think we all were. Yeah, it was. I was about 84, I was about 12, mm-hmm. I think. So in about 88, I was about 16, 15, 16. But clearly, yeah. children back in the 80s were much tougher because our parents were willing to abandon us uh, in a complete stranger's house. <laughs> yes. Uh, they thought that obviously, you know, with, 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 with a needle and thread, we'd be able to find our way home. <laughs> I do remember being dropped off by my dad at these meetings. I, you know, he'd just drive off in the car. You know, sort of looking forlornly. Don't go, Daddy. Don't go. <laughs> so that was quite intimidating, sort of going in by myself. But um, I started making friends with, with, with a lot of young kids uh, who were there as well in a similar situation. And then it started being like, uh, there's one guy I found in school who liked it as well, so he used to come with me. What did you think of those uh, those meetings? I mean, you know, did you go in with any... Ex- can you remember if you went in, in with any expectations or were you blown away by the fact that you could see, say, black and white Doctor Who or just Doctor Who you'd never seen before? I was blown away by going into a room full of Doctor Who fans because I don't know about... Well, these days it's very cool to like Doctor Who, but in our day, God, it's not like a pensioner. But, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the dark times, it certainly wasn't uh, cool to like Doctor Who. And um, none of my friends really liked it to the intense level I did. So going to a, a meeting was a, a great way of meeting other like-minded people and also getting to see these stories that uh, you'd only read in the back of a Peter Haining book, the story synopsis. Mm. That was that was great. You know, I used to look forward to them you know, immensely. I remember we were on a family holiday and um, they announced they were showing the uh, the Daleks and my family decided to extend the holiday and I was devastated because yeah. I couldn't see the Daleks, couldn't get back to Melbourne in time. You didn't, th- you didn't throw a Davros-inspired tantrum by any chance, did you? No, it wasn't that bad, but it was close enough. With the pressure of my thumb, I will punch you this car tyre. It was a family holiday to Canberra. Canberra? Yeah. Uh, having been to Canberra once, this is Canberra, our august capital city. It's okay, but you know, you'd rather watch Doctor Who episode than... Absolutely. ...trawl around like Burley Griffin. Yeah. And uh, you, um, you you got involved, uh, I understand, in the committee and also in, in the writing side of the, the, the club, the, the fan scene? Yeah, I started getting uh, involved in the committee... About 1988, I think. And then I was just doing like a general committee member, that's a word, um, mm-hmm. where you just do tasks assigned to you by the treasurer and the secretary. And try. I was trying to drive a bit of promotion for the club, so I was doing uh, very basic radio ads and sending them off to community, community radios who didn't, of course, play any of them. Hence, I got into podcasting. It's a 30-year it's itch that's been scratched, people. <laughs> it is, actually. I've just moved on from analogue tape to digital uh, editing systems. It's fantastic. I started writing the news for the for the magazine, so we were basically getting, when we say news, this is pre-internet, which is getting DWB and Celestial Toy Room and, and, and sort of collating all the good bits out of that and then rewriting it in our own style and putting it as the news. And then uh, slowly then started writing articles in about 1991 to 92. I became the writing editor of Sonic for about 18 months. And fanzines were the lifeblood of, um, of clubs back then. There was no, uh, as I said, no internet. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of people relied on that magazine for their news. I think, I think people listening who are of a certain younger age uh, wouldn't really be able to comprehend the absolute paucity of information that was out there back in the 80s. I mean, when you think about it, there was Doctor Who magazine, which was two or three months late here to Australia, unless you had people sending it out to you. Mm. Uh, of course, there were videotapes, um, which, you know, if you were one of the chosen elite, uh, you, you would get and be able to disseminate it to the, you know, the underlings beneath you. But 
you know, other than some select fanzines, in terms of day-to-day media, there was nowhere near the saturation that you get uh, these days. I mean, today we are drowning in information about the show in absolute mainstream media. But in terms of uh, coverage for the show in the mainstream media back in those days, there was absolutely nothing. So if you wanted to find something out, you had to basically join a club uh, and get the fanzine. And as you say, the fanzines were really the lifeblood, you know, in terms of creative outlet for people who were contributing and in terms of news dissemination. It's 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 remarkable. Remar- remar- it's remarkable how things have changed. So, I mean, it's it's been a you know a bit of a progression, but it's remarkable how things have changed. If you take a snapshot from 1987, for instance, and look at 2014, it's just remarkable. It is. I remember getting DWB, you know, reading the news and ringing all my friends, you know, and giving them the same conversation. Oh, guess what, guess what, guess what, guess what. And now it's pretty much... It's just instantaneous, and and you were lucky because you you lived in uh, the capital city of Victoria, Melbourne, and I spent most of the eighties, uh, in, in actual fact, all of the eighties, uh, living in in a couple of uh, in three small country towns uh, across that decade. And you, it was I remember on uh, being delighted to hear a question about Doctor Who on Sale of the Century. I mean. <laughs> That that's a, a quiz show for those who don't know. Um, with, that's how just lacking in, in in any coverage there was. Occasionally there'd be there's some stuff in a, a weekly listings magazine called TV Week, uh, but really it was apart from the show on the telly itself. For me, there were and you know the target novelizations and and the magazine. There was there was bugger all out there, and only moving to uh, to Melbourne in the uh, in nineteen ninety. Uh, enabled me to actually sort of be suddenly swamped in information. You really needed a club up where you were. <laughs> a club organised uh, along you know normal lines, but uh, <laughs> less, less said about that the better. But uh, now, I mean, at, at some point, you know, you you basically decided to to move away from fandom. Is that right? About nineteen ninety nineteen ninety three. Yeah. So basically, we did like a final issue, and uh, a few of us who were on the committee at the same time, pretty much said that was it. Was it relief, sadness? Did you Were you happy to be sort of handing, handing off the mantle, passing on the mantle? I think it was a bit of relief. When you're running a club and, and you're running it with a group of people, uh, it is all consuming for a while and then you, you start getting jobs and your personal life de- develops and uh, your attractions move on to other things. So uh, at the end of it, it was a bit of relief. But I mean, I wasn't sad because I knew I'd still stay friends, you know, with the with the, the friends I made. I, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I listened to conversations with people. The main thing they say about fandom is the friends that you make. And usually they're lifelong friends. And we can still talk about it in a, you know, in a, in a social setting as opposed to going to a, a club meeting, and that's how it has been for the last, uh, you know, twenty odd years. Yeah, I can only agree. I mean, I, I was a club member for for most of the latter half of the nineties and into the two thousands, and I basically parlayed getting the magazine by, you know, issuing a stream of uh, reasonably half decent or just half decent sh- uh, short fiction and and reviews and and, and commentary, but. Um, when uh, uh, you know my friends who were on the committee decided to move on, uh, I just, just sort of didn't renew. But I definitely maintained those friendships that I'd built up. <laughs> Even though at my wedding I referred to them as my uh, my uh, non-university friends instead of my Doctor Who friends, <laughs> such was the stigma. Even in two thousand, uh, in the early two thousands, they'll remain friends uh, for you know forever and ever, as as they say. So uh, it's. I mean, but I mean, you, you could you could get that sort of thing at any sort of club. You could join a sporting organisation, or you know, at work, or you know, in a school, in a, in a educational environment. But um, it, it helps that you know, Doctor Who is the cement that binds you together, and then you discover that you have other interests as well. 
before we just move on to why you were drawn back to, to fandom and the future of it, well, what's your you know positive abiding memory of your time with the club that first time round? Uh, again, let's go back to the friendships and, and uh, I just remember putting helping put together you know the magazine at late late nights and it was, it was more of a social thing. We'd have committee meetings and then they just finish off our committee meetings, end up going to a pub in the town mm. and um, then going off to nightclubs and things like that because we're at the age where we're starting to do all that. So, um, But uh, my main abiding memory of it was just, um, I mean, on the, on the whole, my memories are, are fond. You, I think you came back to the club a little bit earlier than me. What, what, what Did you see anything that had changed in the way things had, were run or...? Or, or even how fandom how fandom was. Well, it's interesting. I think there's two streams of fandom now. One is where it sort of totally embraces uh, the internet, you know, with forums uh, and like what we're doing now with podcasts. And even I've seen some uh, Doctor Who podcasts starting to do some video podcasts. I don't know. I don't think we we do. We probably scare people off. I mean, the internet has, has had a massive effect on fandom. I remember when I went to university in 1990 and I had access to uh, the internet for the very first time. And of course, one of the first things I typed into the little search engine was Doctor Who, and it came up with um, Rickard's Doctor Who, which is obviously the the main message board at that time. Uh, and that was just a complete revelation that you're able to talk to Doctor Who, you know, talk in air quotes to Doctor Who fans, not only in town, you know, in the same city, but around the world. And that was that was remarkable for me, uh, coming from you know, as I said, an uh, information deprived background. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, of course, you know, Doctor Who, as you say, I mean, there's it, it went from message boards to primitive websites to uh, to, 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 to sort of multimedia empires like Gallifrey Base, etc., etc., and now you know, as we as you said before, we're doing podcasts. People are releasing fanzines as PDFs. Uh, there's video uh, vidcasts, uh, blogs. It's just that the sky's the limit, and then you sort of wonder. And as you said, it's a two-speed economy. Effectively, there's those people who you know use the internet intimately, and there are those who attend um, uh, meetings. And I sometimes wonder how much crossover there is between the two because. In this days of sort of fragmented, uh, you know, society has been atomized. That people are people are sort of complaining or worried about. You know, people communicate via their PCs or their laptops or their Twitter accounts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think there is still some some room or some yeah, some room for uh, the personal interaction that you get at clubs. Or even uh, as I said, if you meet people on forums, uh, they might be in the same location. You might say, "Hey, let's meet up somewhere." And so, do you think that uh, say the internet age will will have much the same as we had in the 80s and 90s, but it's in a slightly different form. So there'll still be fanzines, but they'll be available as a PDF. There'll still be... I mean, there's still conventions, obviously. There's massive conventions these days, as you experience yourself in the UK. So there's obviously that craving for people to come together and celebrate the show. It doesn't hurt that, you know, the main actor of the day is is up there talking to you. Um, internet forums I mean do you see that any of these will have a corrosive effect on the sort of the personal interaction or I, I think with forums um, I mean I don't really go on any do you go on any uh, yeah I go on a few each day see I don't really sort of go near them I'm, I've got really no interest in I will say that I only go on them to facilitate my insatiable thirst for omni rumor you know knowledge the omni rumor consumes everything if there was no omni rumor I'd, ch- I'd be checking Gallifrey base out once or twice a week not every day I think in terms of corrosive effect uh, I think the only problem with forums is that um, you know if you post something which might ha- it might have a different inclination and because people don't kind of there's no visual cues to read or social cues to sort of disseminate uh, whatever you say even though you think might be okay to say it can uh, can was it flame on or 
Flame Wars or something? Flame Wars or something like that. Yeah, and they might think you're a troll or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I think, I actually think forums will sort of slowly fade away. I just think there's so many of them at the moment. They'll just slowly fade. There's just, there can only be room for one or two. I think I might disagree slightly. I think you get behemoths like uh, Gallifrey Base and the other other smaller forums are more like gadflies who sort of buzz around. I mean, the places like Aposcaro or Planet Planet Mondas, uh, they're they're quite tiny. They might only have one or two thousand members. Where you look at Gallifrey Base, they've got tens of thousands of members, and they've got the the, the benefit of being there first, essentially, more or less. Um, I'm I'm actually interested in the sort of with with the rise of podcasts. There's, you, you, I mean, and you can see the, the biggest podcasts are getting ten to twelve thousand downloads, just judging by the numbers on their websites. Mm. There's, there's, uh, is that facilitating in you know, the rise of the podcast? Is that facilitating a conversation between fans, or do fans like listening to podcasts to be talked to and, and have their views, uh, their views affirmed? Uh, I mean, what what podcasts are a relatively new innovation within fandom. I mean, where do you see the the utility or the interest in that? I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think um, I think people like to instead of listening to the radio talk, you know, droning about political, life, you know, things going on in the news or, or sort of that sort of depressing stuff. People can have it or right, listen to a conversation about Doctor Who without leaving their home, or listen to it on the way to work, or as I do, listen to it at work. I listen to a fair number of Doctor Who podcasts to break up my day, or and some other podcasts. Listen to some music podcasts as well. So I think it's a bit of yes, I like to hear a conversation about Doctor Who, and if they, you know, if they feel strong or disagree strongly about an opinion, they might actually make you know, so I might just send off a tweet or send a letter back to the to the podcast in question, and hopefully the podcast will read it out and, and start another conversation about it. So it just depends on the interaction of of what the listener wants to get back out of it hmm. I suppose in, in their own way the, the dedicated band of listeners are their own uh, you know club themselves I mean I'm sure there's a, a massive amount of crossover uh, between you know the various podcasts that do garner you know such large download numbers but um, and you do, you do you do get a, a little bit of uh, a discussion going I suppose on, on if they run a forum or if they invite emails or, or, or you know questions etc but I suppose it's only in a very limited way but um, I, I, I tend to think that the, the club meetings themselves will die away as those diehards who like coming to meetings and like getting their fanzine in the mail as, as, as that sort of thing becomes either less economic or less viable uh, and you know the younger fans push through and they've, they've never attended the meeting and they have no interest I, I tend to think that fandom will continue to fragment even more and while the show does bind them together I, I sometimes wonder whether what we experience, where the show drew us together, but it was other things that kept us, you know, friends, whether that phenomenon will sort of, you know, disappear within fandom, where you know you've got people effectively shouting at each other on forums, and there's no real interaction in terms of, uh, you know, getting to know one another. You see a you see an avatar on a screen, you see a handle on the screen, but you don't, you know, really know anything about them, and it, it's just a pity that it may be that as the years roll on. Uh, and the internet, you know, consumes more and more of fandom. That you just have less of that opportunity to to, to really get to know people and you know make make friends. Maybe we're in a uh, pick and mix culture where you know the the younger fans, you know, they'll listen to a podcast, they'll go on a forum, they'll tweet a message, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And that they don't have that, and that f- f- 
that that uh, sates their appetite for the show. I mean, the the show is central. They watch it on telly. They'll go onto Twitter. They'll, they'll they'll tweet. You know, tears are rolling down my eyes as Matt Smith snaps into Peter Capaldi. Um, you know, they'll make a comment on a forum, or you know, they'll, they'll go onto Tumblr or Flickr or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, they just don't have the have the need. And I mean, they've got their other friends outside in a different circle, and and uh, they just don't see the utility in going to a meeting where it's just alien to them. When we were growing up, it was the only way to have that interaction where now they're spoiled for choice. So one of them will, unfortunately, probably fade away. Which is a real pity, but um, that's just the way the world is. So, after that rather heavy topic, onto something lighter. Um, another letter from one of our listeners. Did I say letter? Oh, God, I'm back in the 80s again, aren't I? <laughs> uh, a, a, a posting on our blog. That's uh, 42todoomsday.wordpress.com. Um, hi, fellas. Uh, a very thought-provoking and interesting podcast, as always. I find most of the comments about the 50th anniversary and Matt Smith rather perplexing, as, for me, the 50th anniversary story started with Asylum of the Daleks. Every Clara story up to the 50th anniversary special has been a nod to early eras, production styles and music, including the varying nature of Clara. From the Hartnell meeting Colin Baker story telling of Asylum, complete with Clara's 60s fashion and Daleks transformed from the dead, to the Troutonesque snowmen and the Doctor in the overground rather than the underground, a very Trouton pun there, to the so very pertly secret organisation in London taken down by a motorbike riding character unit, a nice cup of tea, to the rings of Tom Baker with dodgy 70s effects, pyramids, puzzles, giant pirateish planets, Dudley Simpson-like music, etc., etc., and on through the reworkings of Silver Nemesis, etc., etc. Just to stop, pause there, uh, you comparing uh, Silver Nemesis with uh, Nightmare and uh, Nightmare and Silver. I think I would take Silver Nemesis over Nightmare and Silver any day. Oh, really? Uh, well, I haven't seen Silver Nemesis in probably 20 years. So Okay, you know. go and watch it and then come, come and let us know. <laughs> All right. I'd rather have Nightmare and Silver any day. I think, uh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think fans uh, out there are spewing into their dinner just listening to what I just heard. <laughs> I said after hearing what I just said, I'm confused already. All right. So going on with the other uh, post, unfortunately, it wasn't advertised well, so the premise seems to sadly have been missed by many fans. Uh, perhaps I see it because I'm very aware of the music and the visual themes just as much as the story. Anyway, bravo, Stephen Moffat for attempting to encapsulate 50 years of story, storytelling tropes into half a season of the show. I loved it. And that's Katrina uh, from somewhere within Australia. Thank you, Katrina. Uh, what did you think about what Katrina has to say, mate? Again, I think I mentioned it in, my, in the last podcast, Series 7 is the one I want to go back and watch in its entirety. So I'm just trying to find the time to actually do it, to be honest. A big uh, big on the motorcycle riding up the, the shard. Was the Bells of St. John? That was it. The Rings of Akatan. I don't think I want to go back and watch that one in a hurry. I think I'd rather watch Silver Nemesis than that. I was just about to say. Yeah. I was just about to say. I mean, there was def- there was very definitely a uh, a tipping of the hat to the past in, in a number of the stories. Well, in all in all of the stories, in actual fact. What was the uh, was it the Snowman with uh, the Great Intelligence in? Yes. The, you know, had the, uh, the the tin with the London Underground map on. So yeah, there's plenty of nods. Can we, can we just lay to rest? Surely Stephen Moffat and the production team knew about the return of the Web of Fear at about the time it was it was being written. The script was being written. There's no no reason. Gaddis confirmed it. Gaddis knows all. Yeah, he confirmed it. So uh, that's a good letter, though. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. And as always, if you want to contact us, uh, there's our Twitter feed at 42Doomsday. Uh, our Gmail address is 42Doomsday uh, at gmail.com. Uh, as with this particular posting, you can reach us on our blog. Uh, and of course, uh, we're now on Facebook, along with 4 billion other people, um, uh, facebook.com slash 42Doomsday. So send those missives in, people. We, we look forward to them very much. So for our next podcast, we're going to do uh, something a bit different, aren't we, Rob? Yes. Would you like to hear what it is? Uh, I'm all ears. Last year's 50th anniversary celebrations, there was one doctor who we thought was slightly overlooked. So next podcast, we're going to be talking about the Pertwee era, and uh, we're actually going to be having our first uh, special guest on the uh, on the cast to help us uh, go through that. His name is Rob Lloyd. He's an actor and comedian, and he's also uh, been travelling Australia, New Zealand, and uh, the UK with his one-man show, uh, Who Me, and uh, has recently been announced as a host of the uh, Science and Doctor Who tour, which is uh, going to be starting touring around Australia in June. So um, he'll be uh, joining us for our next podcast. But uh, what we'd like to do is, in the meantime, uh, send us your thoughts and memories and opinions of the Pertwee era. And um, we've got a couple of prizes to uh, to give away. We've got uh, two copies of the, I think it's an Australian exclusive, Rob, the um, Best of the Doctor, 2005 to 2010 which is a, a compilation of all the BBC America uh, Doctor Who documentaries. Uh, thanks to our friends at BBC DVD. Send all your letters in, and uh, or your or Facebook messages in, or Twitter feeds, or w- w- whatever whatever communication method you like to uh, get to us. Carrier pigeon. Or smoke signals, even. One for Hartnell, two for Trout, and three for Purple. <laughs> and then what we'll do is... Uh, Myself and Rob and uh, the other Rob will get together and uh, go through those letters and uh, we'll decide who will win. So uh, just make sure that when you're entering, your DVD players can pay PayPal uh, discs. And uh, again, we'll stump up the postage, won't we, Rob? We'll be down the docks again selling our bodies. Uh, Yes, we will. And remember, fans, to win is to lose and he who loses wins. Thank you, Razzalon. Sorry to interrupt our sparkling repartee, but I've actually realised we didn't give a closing date of when we need the uh, competition our responses back by. If you can get them uh, back to us by the 8th of February, that would be absolutely icebox. So uh, we look forward to reading them then. Carry on. Should I have worn a beard for that yes, one? Yes, so I need to work out how to slow down your voice like the special edition Five Doctors, where they slow down his voice to make him sound more menacing and not like a pantomime. To win is to lose. Is that menacing enough? Actually, yeah, it scared the crap out of me. Sorry, it's it's getting late here, It's folks. getting very late here, so I might wrap this up. So, uh, for our next cast, uh, we will be talking about the Pertwee years, which I'm looking forward to. So, I've been Rob, the Missing Episodes Mystery Hoaxer. And I've been Mark, and I want Capaldi's jacket. Goodbye. Goodbye.